Thanks for listening to the show. Join us online at playvolutionhq.com and learn how to support the show at explorationsearlylearning.com slash support. Welcome to Renegade Rules. Kick back, settle in, and let us fill your ear holes with early learning information, wisdom, and advice. And now, here's Heather and Jeff. Welcome to Renegade Rules. Jeff Johnson here on the phone with Heather Shoemaker. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Heather. We got a guest with us today again. That's always fun times. Who are we talking to today? We're talking to Katie Nasker, and she's the author of a new book called Parenting in the Eye of the Storm. And before we say hello to Katie, I just want to let people know um, that this book, even though it's, the subtitle says it's an adoptive parent's guide to navigating the teen years, I want everyone to know that it doesn't matter if your family ha- is an adoptive family with, um, or not, because there's so much wisdom that we can gain whether we have adopted children in our own families or not. And the other is, is that even it's about teenagers, and a lot of the listeners here are focused on young kids, I see so many parallels between the emotional life of the teens and the emotional life of the three-year-olds. So um, come and listen to what Katie has to say. And welcome, Katie. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are thrilled. Um, You know, Katie's book gets into all kinds of um, wise words when you have a, a child who hits the teen years, and especially with a, a child who's been adopted into a family, what happens? Katie, how did you come to write this book? Can you just give us a little background on who you are and, and why this book came to be? Sure. Well, I, I am a Korean adoptee, and I, I'm a psychotherapist um, here in uh, Newton, Massachusetts. And, you know, I see a lot of young college students and um, older teens and also, of course, adoptees through the life cycle. But it was really through my work with the young adults that I, I started to be concerned about um, the fact that it, it, young adults weren't always ready for adulthood. And I started to worry about that a little bit and just started to wonder why that might be. And that was sort of how this book came to be, was that I wanted to help adoptive parents be able to successfully prepare their um, adopted teen for adulthood and also to strengthen their relationship. Right. And when you, um, you know, when you talk about preparing a, um, a teen for adulthood or even a younger child for adulthood, I think sometimes people think that they're preparing them for adulthood by, say, piling on the homework or get them ready for the real world. But you're really talking about emotional skills and, and communication skills and all that side of things. Mm-hmm. I am I am talking about emotional skills. I also end up also talking about kind of job skills and, you know, money and, you know, all those other important things right. that come up um, in young adulthood. But but the book really starts with this this um, issue of what I describe as um, unrescuing, and that that's what I recommend for adoptive parents. That the first task is really to sort of um, unrescue your adopted teen, and that was a theme that I, I I continue to see a lot, which is that adoptive parents end up stepping in or intervening when they see that their teen's life is stressful or causing some turmoil. 
and that the adoptive parent kind of steps in so that um, the adopted teen isn't really able to experience it themselves and grow from it and develop coping skills and learn more about themselves, too. Right. So this idea of what you call unrescuing, and some people might say, you know, building resilience or encountering risk or dealing with all kinds of hardship that way, why is it such a big deal, particularly for um, families with adoption in the, in the family versus just the regular old helicopter parent? Is this helicopter parent with extra on top of it? Can you can you get into that a little bit? I, I think there's definitely overlap, but, you know, I think for adoptive parents, the fact that they know that their child has already been through so much, I think there's just a natural human inclination to want to give them everything that they never had and offer everything that they be the family that they've always needed and deserved. And, and um, you know, just, and I think it can be hard for parents to say no and to sort of allow their child to flounder because they don't want their child to feel desperate and they definitely don't want their child to feel abandoned again, um, particularly by their, the adoptive parents. And the adoptive parents definitely want to be there for them in every way. And so I think that can sort of um, cloud their judgment sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's hard for any parent to um, think that if I say no or if I'm the bad guy or if I don't help, you know, if I don't drive 20 miles to school to deliver that lunch bag or whatever it is that is the rescue mission, um, uh, that, I'll, that I'll lose that child's love and respect and the relationship will crumble. But you're actually saying it, it can be stronger when we don't rescue. Absolutely. And and sometimes I remind adoptive parents, which is something that we just have to say because it is such an emotionally charged issue, um, that, you know, feeling abandoned and being abandoned are pretty different. You know, being abandoned is something that, you know, that no child should really experience and that no child deserves. Feeling abandoned, in my experience, is an important part of growing up that, you know, that part of growing up is learning to cope with those feelings and learning to be alone and being able to kind of make that journey to end up being able to thrive or be successful and be happy and be kind of more independent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Jeff, um, you've been awfully quiet over there. What are your thoughts? Uh, I grew up in an adoptive family. My parents adopted five kids while I was growing up and then two more while I was growing up, and I, I completely agree. I think they, they, they got in this habit that they had to uh, f- fix, prevent, uh, shelter, protect um, uh, these kids who'd had, and, and they'd come from some, some really tough situations uh, more, than, more than they felt that they needed to do that with me, and, and I hadn't I've been quiet because I've been thinking about this. I, I it's something I hadn't thought about, but um, thinking back at it, at the dynamic, I, I think that was going on. And um, if they had it to do over again, I'm I'm not sure they they would have would have done as much of that as as they did. So there. Right, um, and when you're getting into some of those ideas about um, you know feeling abandoned versus being abandoned, can you? You know, a lot of us, uh, we come from all walks of life, the listeners to this podcast. Some have direct experience, as Jeff does, you know, being raised in a, an adoptive family. And others um, really don't know much about it but, but want to be um, 
you know, more knowledgeable. Can you touch on some of those layers of loss that you describe in the beginning of your book of, of what are some really universal or nearly universal types of feelings that, that happens with kids who've been adopted into a family? Uh, well, you know, I always say that adoptees are not have not cornered the market on trauma. You know, we're certainly not the only <laughs> ones who have ever gone through anything. <clears throat> and and I certainly wouldn't describe it. Actually, I literally had a parent mention this to me this week. Well, wouldn't you say this is the kind of the worst possible trauma? And um, and I said absolutely not. Of course, I mean, of course not. You know, and and um, I shouldn't say of course. I mean, uh-huh. I know that they were really thinking about their. Uh, daughter and really feeling for her and wanting to empathize with uh, that experience. But um, but it is still a unique experience, though, which is what I wanted to capture in the beginning of the book. And there are just certain things that don't always get put to words, as maybe Jeff had mentioned. It's not always talked about, but that um, there are specific aspects of the adoption experience that, that, that aren't always put to words. And um, one of the experiences that I wanted to talk about in the book was this experience of walking into your own life 20 minutes late. And you know, I, I compared it to the experience of walking into a movie late and trying to put the pieces together mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what happened in the beginning, you know, what you missed, you know, the fact that everyone else knows what's going on um, and you don't, and so they're enjoying it and you aren't, and then you feel sort of badly that you're still kind of uh, obsessed with the fact that you missed the beginning and then other people try to reassure you, oh, don't worry, you didn't miss much. And But then things will happen and you don't really understand what's going on. Um, and so that that is what I describe as the loss of continuity. And I think you're right that uh, people feel that in a lot of different ways. You know, they feel like their their life doesn't always fit together well. You know, that there have been kind of transitions that have been sort of quilted together or just different fragments of one's life that don't, really fit together very well or feel like they're competing with one another. And um, that's certainly the adoption experience, too. Mm-hmm. So whether a child is adopted as an infant um, from day one or whether the adoption comes further along their life, there's a segment of life that's before the adoption, and that's what you're calling that walking into your life 20 minutes late. For some kids, it might be 30 minutes or so. on. It's a different amount of time, but it's that arrival um, late and not knowing in some cases, not knowing what the past was like at all. Absolutely. And I think for domestic adoptees, for adoptees who do know something about their past, um, and sometimes it's pretty uh, rough stuff, you know, like abuse and, Mm -hmm. you know, various other forms of neglect and um, damage, you know, a lot of emotional damage and a lot of challenges with, um, let's say, their biological parents or their birth parents, and so for them, it's, it can be slightly different in that it feels a little like a kind of the life not lived, you know, that, you know, we, I know when I was a kid, maybe when you, we had the choose your own adventure books and, um, you know, there's a little bit of that. What if, what if, you know, someone hadn't intervened when I was two and what if someone didn't know that I, this was happening to me when I was 10 or what if I hadn't gone to that foster family, would I blah, blah, you know, and so there's this kind of, um, distracting experience that, like, let's say, especially domestic adoptees who know about their history continue to have throughout their life, and it, and it really sort of comes up um, unexpectedly for them, like, at, during certain important developmental milestones, like when they're getting married or when they graduate or mm-hmm. when they, buy, you know, have their first child, and um, so it's, it can be pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. Right. And why, um, 
you know, why particularly, you say there's these moments when for a, uh, a person who is adopted, particularly in childhood, that, that things like this will come up more than other times. And I think you're saying that one of the main times it comes up for a lot of people is during the teenage years. Can you um, talk about that for a moment? Yeah, I think that I think that teens are really sort of pulled in each direction, that they don't have a good grasp on their past because sometimes they don't know their past or sometimes their past was kind of full of a lot of um, uh, problems. And they don't have a good sense of the future because, you know, as one kid said to me, um, if you don't know where you came from, it's hard to know where you're going. And, you know, that's definitely true. It, it just is, it, It's just something that is, I think, specific to adoptees. That is, if you don't kind of have all the information, it's just really difficult to um, to kind of form one's identity. And it's that's sort of hard anyway. But it becomes even more challenging, like when you don't know what your parents looked like and when you don't know what your parents' strengths and weaknesses are. I mean, I know from being a biological parent that there is a good amount of overlap between me and my strengths and weaknesses and my kids' strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that they aren't their own people, but we do look somewhat alike, and, and I can definitely see where some of their traits came from, and I can recognize them. And that gives me a head start as a biological parent. It allows me to think ahead about some of the issues that they might be going through. It allows me to intervene more quickly because I maybe have already faced some of those issues or maybe already know, you know, some of the possible interventions for those issues. And it helps me and it helps them, the kids, um, have a sense of where they might be headed. You know, they can, they have similar strengths to me. So they, they do like social work. They do like feelings. They are interested in, you know, music and whatever else, you know? And so, Mm -hmm. um, so whether it's overlap with me or whether it's overlap with my husband, there it feels more familiar, whereas for adoptive families and for adoptee, adopted teens, they are often kind of coming. It's, it's just a, a continual experience of discovery, which kind of is exhausting. It's exhausting anyway, but especially during the teen years when they're, they're feeling pretty lost anyway. So it's, it's just a lot. Mm-hmm. So this envisioning the future, I think um, – you know, when I was a teenager, and I come from a from biological parents, but you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do, or what I wanted to become, or who I was. You know, a lot of teens are grappling with all that, trying to figure out identity issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of knew how tall I would be because I could look at my parents and realize we would not be a family of giants. <laughs> you know, unless there was an, uh, a stray gene here or there, I was gonna. I knew about what height I would get to. Um, I knew, um, as you say, some personality and interests and things. Of course, kids are often not like their parents, but I think even with the physical things, knowing how tall you're going to be in a family where you might be seven feet and everybody around you is not, um, I think it can give you some some grounding, as you say, just even know what the parameters are a little bit in, in what's normal for your family. Well, the parameters are so important, and, you know, even especially for teenagers who really care a lot about what they look like and who care a lot about how they're perceived by others. You know, I've had certain teenagers wish that they knew whether they had a propensity to put on weight or whether they had a propensity to, you know, be athletic or whether they were going to be, you know, I mean, one thing with biological families is that even if you don't go down the same road that your parents do, it feels like, at least for a lot of biological kids that I know, that you could have done that that there's, there, there was enough overlap in strengths that that was a sort of viable option for you, a viable path that you chose not to go down. But for a lot of adopted teens, 
there are two paths, and none of them really seem workable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the first path is the birth parent. They certainly don't want to do that because that was just full of turmoil and, and um, kind of, you know, just crushing disappointment. And then for adoptive parents, a lot of adoptees feel like they don't measure up to their adoptive parents. And, you know, I, it, I don't have research about this, but it is common for me to see adoptive parents who did not struggle in school and to see a lot of adoptees who did and who continue to struggle. And so for the adoptive parents, they're starting from scratch again and trying to figure out what it's like, trying to emphasize, trying to understand, trying not to blame or push or judge or, you know, um, get really upset about it. You know, it, it feels like completely um, new territory. I'm, I'm curious, since a lot of um, the podcast listeners are involved in um, early childhood, either you know kindergarten or earlier years than that, um, either as teachers and or as parents, um, what kinds of, you see people, you see families when the, the kids hit teenage years in your practice, but they all start with these stories of, well, when we adopted so-and-so when they were an infant or when they were one, and start with those lovely early years. Uh, what kind of thoughts would you give to people who are who are parenting um, children in those early years to maybe avoid some of the communication habits or pitfalls by the time they reach teenage time? Yeah, you know, sometimes I think about um, those latency years, you know, eight and three and, and four. Well, three, I guess, is in a latency year. But, um, and, you know, that adoptive parents and all parents really have an opportunity to set the tone you know, to set the tone and to set the routine and to set whatever, you know, kind of convey whatever values they have and to really be um, comfortable in their own skin as parents and to convey that to the child. And, and, um, and I think that that really does go a long way. I think that when, when the teen years hit and if those routines and those expectations haven't been put in place, it can make things a lot harder. It's, it's more challenging, not impossible, but more challenging to... Um, to kind of try to set all that stuff in during the teen years because there's just a lot to do um, before right. they graduate. So let's let's dive into some concrete examples there because a lot of your book, I just struck with the parallels between um, your advice for ad parenting adoptive teens and ado um, dealing with children, whether they're adopted or not, in the preschool years. And the two huge things I see, well, maybe the unrescue mission is a third one, but feelings and discounting feelings and try to fixing fix the child to make them happy all the time is one mm -hmm. and the other is learning how to set reasonable appropriate limits limits and feelings are so huge and they pervade parenting from the beginning um can we dive into limits and feelings a bit and how um how important this is to establish and as you say set the tone from the beginning um, and, and how important it is when it manifests in the teen years. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about, you know, what, what just, and, and I think it's in part human nature, too, that, you know, when we experience a young child especially suffering, then there are, there are things that kick in um, that, that make us, that kind of lead us to want to say things that don't necessarily take us in the place that we'd want to go um you know things like reassurance things like oh sweetie it wasn't that bad or let's you know just oh she was just being nice she was just trying to help you know you know and kind of um trying to sugarcoat the experience which is so confusing for a child because what we 
theoretically want for them is for them to be able to recognize and tolerate difficult feelings. And what I end up seeing with the teens is that um, that they're that those feelings ha- they haven't had enough experience with those feelings, and so they actually have not had enough experience learning to work through and cope and be successful in tolerating those feelings, which is paradoxical, I think, for a lot of parents. But um, you know, in a way, in order to tolerate feeling abandoned, they have to experience it, and so. Um, that is the way that we develop coping skills is by going through hard things. I mean, I, you know, when I think back to my childhood and, and other, let's say, adopted parents, you know, usually the hardest times in one's life are also the times when we learn the most about ourselves, about the world around us, about what we might want to do as a next step, about our relationships with other people. You know, I mean, we learn so much from just the natural, organic unfolding of life, and I feel like, um, you know, I had used that example in the unrescuing chapter of the baby sea turtles who travel down the beach to the sea <laughs> and how some people um, end up picking them up to make sure that they'll be safe and make it all the way to the sea. And so they pick them up and bring them to the water's edge and then kind of shoo them in. And, you know, um, and it seems like a good idea. It seems like, oh, good, they're just ensuring that, you know, nothing bad will happen to them while they walk down this long walk. But in fact, once they get into the water, they're compromised because part of the long walk is developing the strength to be able to survive in the sea. So if they, if, so they don't have the strength that they need, actually, to survive. So the person is actually compromising them, even though it, it gives us a sense of security that we've made sure that it happens. But in effect, ultimately, it, there's a cost. Hey, everybody, we'll be back next week with part two of this three-part interview. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Music by Alexander Shoemaker. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.